for the second book in God's Word. Exodus is where we'll be once again in our ongoing studies through this a great story of God's redemption and revelation toward His people. We once again, just as we did last week, have three chapters uh, to cover together uh, this morning, chapters 28 through 30. And it's a chapter really all about the priesthood. But to get us going, I'm actually only going to read just the first five verses of chapter 28. It'll give you something of a sense of the priest's holiness before the Lord and the clothing required. So let me just read those first five verses of chapter 28 and I pray for our time and then we'll begin together. So listen now as, as God speaks to you through his word. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful with whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments. For Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests, and they shall receive gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, that it is living and active. And pray that by your spirit that you would cut us to the heart this morning in its truth, in its fullness that we might listen with repentance and faithfulness, that your Spirit would open our eyes to behold the wondrous truth of Christ, our priest. So help us to hear with earnestness. Help me to preach with, with courage and clarity as you command me to. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the best loved and, and certainly most edifying preachers and authors in the English-speaking world of the 19th century was a bishop in England named J.C. Ryle. In his most famous book, which has remained in print ever since it was first published in the late 19th century, is simply titled Holiness. Some of you might know that book. I would commend it to you. It's an edifying read, and it covers just about everything you would expect it to, but many people today don't realize that that famous book, which is one of the best on the subjects of holiness, well, it was actually the fourth book that Ryle wrote in a particular context. He, of course, was a bishop in the Church of England at the time, and he understood that the Church of England was quickly forgetting the true gospel. And so he began to write these books, these treatises that were a defense of, of true biblical thinking, of true sound doctrine and, and Christian living. And he's very easy to read. And so the first volume that actually published, defending what was known at the time as the evangelical position, that uh, was a book that was titled Knots Untied, and it was subtitled Being Plain Statements on Disputes of Religion. And it's a book that's got 16 different papers collected into 16 different chapters. And the 11th chapter is simply titled The Priest. And Ryle begins in this way. He says, he who wishes to have any comfort in religion must have a priest. A religion without a priest is a poor, unhappy thing. 
Now, what is our religion? Have we a priest? And students, you might know your world religions well enough to know that it's true. Every religion has a priest, someone that mediates the power of the divine, someone that represents people before God. And so, kids, if, if you want to know what a priest is, that's a simple way to think about it. Kings in the Old Testament, they were essentially people that represented God to the people. Well, a priest was one who represented the people to God. And it's an important point to recognize at this point in Exodus why we're suddenly now beginning to think about the priesthood. Because if you were with us last week, we noticed these home-building plans that God had placed in Moses' hands in chapter 25 to 27. It was basically all about furniture that was to be built and even the tabernacle itself and the outer courtyard. And we, we tried to notice how the tabernacle itself was God's dwelling place. You might remember if you glance back to chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, that God called it His sanctuary, where He was going to dwell in the midst of His people. And so the tabernacle was pointing forward, we said, to our home in heaven. At the same time, it was pointing backward with all these allusions to that original temple and tabernacle that was in the Garden of Eden. But God drawing near to His people presents a problem for the nation of Israel. Because this, of course, is the culmination of where God is taking them, we're going to see by the end of the book. But I trust that you understand that a holy God planning to draw near to an unholy people can be a terrifying reality. That's why even just recently I was putting the children to bed and our youngest son, Boston, was going back in part of the house. I guess it was dark enough and he's taken to using the word spooky recently. And he said, Daddy, it's spooky in there. Can you come with me? And for the nation of Israel to draw near to God, it would have been a terrifying reality. They needed someone to go with them. Or actually, better said, in the book of Exodus, they needed someone to go for them. Because we might have seen last week, if you remember, that the nation of Israel, they weren't allowed to come into the temple. Someone needed to go for them. And so all we're wanting to see today from a text that might seem relatively obscure, but I think we're going to see its essential Christological importance quite easily, is that only God's ordained priest can bring his people into his presence. Only God's ordained priest can bring you into God's presence. That's all that this text is trying to tell you. It's doing so, of course, with lots of words. If you just glance down the number of verses in chapter 28 and chapter 29 and chapter 30, and to give it some sense of its simplicity, we'll notice first of all in chapter 28 and 29, the priest's holiness, which comes in two parts. And then the second heading for us is the priest's service. And we'll spend pretty much all of our time in that first part of the, of the priest's holiness. And then we'll give some comment at the end to the priest's service before we do bring it to Jesus Christ. Have you a priest? Does Israel have a priest? Well, first what we see is that they're going to have priests of holiness. And the first thing you need to see is they're going to have holy clothing. Look at verse 1. Uh, we're told that Aaron and his family are to come near to God. Verse 2 tells us, that Moses has commanded you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And so we talked about last week how if you were to look on the tabernacle, it would have been rich in color. 
brilliant in its splendor and array. And you would have looked at the tabernacle there in the wilderness, there in the desert wanderings of Israel, and thought to yourself, rightly so, this is a place befit for royalty. This is a place befit for kingly authority. And what's going to happen with the priest's clothing is they're going to use the same kind of colors. It's going to have the same kind of outward splendor and array that communicates their holiness the place of authority, the place of representation for the nation of Israel. And look at the garments that they're supposed to wear, verse 4. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, or as we Texans would say, an ephod, and a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and for his sons to serve as priests. So we're thinking first about the priest's holiness as Holy clothing. So I just want to mention a few things about these garments, a few simple points before we turn to the priest's consecration in chapter 29. So if you just glance down, verse 6 through 13, first we get this ephod. Okay? Now, students, if you've ever played a sport that uses what we Americans tend to call pennies or the Brits call bibs, you know, these kind of training garments to distinguish one portion of the team from the other when you're not wearing your normal set of uniforms. That's the kind of idea about this ephod or maybe a better way for you to think about it. It's like an apron that's just got a front and back. It goes from the neck all the way down to uh, the mid-thigh. And you'll see if you just glance through verse 6 and following it too, is going to have this brilliant array of colors. Importantly, what's going to go on the shoulders... Notice verse 9 through 11 are these two stones. And on each one of the stones would be the names of six tribes of Israel. And so this was a way in which the priest was going to again represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Which is why verse 12 says, Notice, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulders of the pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord. On his two shoulders for remembrance. And then what comes in verse 15 through 30 is the most important piece of clothing. Okay, so if the most important piece of furniture we said last week was the Ark of the Covenant, that belongs in the Holy of Holies, the most important piece of priestly garb was what's known as the breastpiece of judgment. Other translations might call it the breastplate of decision. Notice verse 15 you shall make a breastpiece of judgment. In skilled work, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it. You notice all the colors that belong to this breastpiece. And then you kind of glance down through the various things. You'll see in verse 21 and following, uh, there to be more stones on this breastpiece. And each stone, now instead of two stones with six tribes, you're going to have 12 stones in four rows of three on the breastplate of the priest. Each representing, of course, one name of one tribe. In Israel, and why it's known as the breastpiece of judgment is probably because of what we're told. Notice in verse 30. In the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord, and thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And so maybe in your own Bible reading, you've come across these Old Testament texts where these kind of mysterious stones of Urim and Thummim have been used to discover and declare God's decision. And we genuinely have no idea what these look like. 
shape, surely was small enough to kind of fit there on the breast piece. But what would often happen in Israel's history, a significant decision would, decision would need to be made, and there would be almost this kind of casting of the stones. And however they landed or whatever color perhaps showed forth was the direction of God's divine will for the nation of Israel at the time. So you had the ephod, then you had the breast piece of judgment, and then underneath both of those things, you have what we're told in verse 31 through 35 is the robe of the ephod. So you see in verse 31, it's all blue. But what's most important for you to see is what's dangling at the bottom of the robe. Look at verse 33 through 35. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. When he comes out so that he does not die. Kids, perhaps a simple way to think about this is if you can consider a time in the year where there's tinkling of bells that seem to mark your ordinary day or perhaps songs in a unique way, and you might think of sleigh bells sounding forth. And it's announcing, isn't it, that Christmas time is here? But if the priest bells were ringing there in the tabernacle area, you would know that priests were at their service. Or maybe another way to think about it is I... I have someone in my life who loves to go hunting in these remote, actually backpacking in remote areas of the Rocky Mountains, very much off the grid, and very much in bear country. And his loved ones are always worried that he's going to get chewed up along the way. And so I've heard him talk about needing a bear bell before. You know, it's just basically a bell you might put on your backpack, or if you have a dog with you, you can put on the collar of your dog, and it just tinkles forth. It makes noise all the time that basically tells bears something is in the area so they don't get aggressive towards you. And of course, God doesn't need bells on the bottom of the priest's robe to know that they're ministering in his midst, does he? But those bells, tinkering forth, uh, would be an announcement of their holiness, that they're wearing that which God has required them to wear, that you must come into God's presence with splendor and attire of holiness if you're going to serve in the Lord's house. Thus, the end of verse 35 tells us he has to wear it so that he does not die. It's almost as though when you, when you come into God's presence, isn't it true that His holiness has this kind of nuclear-like component to it? It's always radiating forth. And that can be a very dangerous reality if you're not coming into His presence as He has commanded you to do so. So you have the ephod, you have the breastplate, you have this robe. You'll notice verse 36 through the end of the chapter, there's three more items of clothing. You have... The tunic, you have the sash, but I just want to focus your attention on the turban. Look at verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And the word there for plate, it actually means blossom or flower. So in all likelihood, there on the priest's turban would have been this kind of floral decoration on which was inscribed, holy to the Lord. And the reason why is, notice verse 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So you see this, don't you? That he is the representative of God's people, that God's a holy God drawing near to an unholy people. Everything must be done just so. 
in order for forgiveness, in order for acceptance to be received. I wonder if you have a priest that might bring about your forgiveness and your acceptance. Sort of thinking about the priest's holiness versus holy clothing. Now in chapter 29, it's about holy consecration. Holy consecration. Earlier this week, I was speaking with a few brothers in the church about the diary of Andrew Bonar, who's an old Scottish pastor that was much loved in years past. And, and you, can, you can read his diary. It's, it's a wonderful book, maybe to add to your own devotional life, because it's just very moving and challenging and convicting uh, to see what God did with this man throughout many, many decades of ministry, all the highs and lows and of his Christian experience. And there's a time in his diary when he's getting ready to enter the gospel ministry. And it seems like every single entry is taken up. He's consumed with this idea of his ordination day. He's always talking about details that are being arranged for his ordination, when exactly it's going to take place, how it's going to take place. And so you get to the actual day of his ordination in his journal, and he speaks about this Mr. Finley from Perth, Uh, coming down and laying his hands on his head, and obviously the other elders laying their hands on Bonar as well. And then he waxes in a a moving way these eloquent words of the solemnity and the gravity that belong to being set apart on that day for gospel ministry. But surely his solemnity and gravity would pale in comparison to what the priests are getting ready to go through as they're going to be ordained to the priesthood. Notice verse 1 of chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them. To consecrate them. That they may serve me as priests. So what you want to see in chapter 29. Is nothing more than a very long. Elaborate drawn out ordination ceremony. That involves primarily two things. Number one is washing. Number two is offering. Look at verse 4. Moses hears the command. You shall bring Aaron and his sons. To the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Okay, so they'd be washed. Symbolically and ceremonially washed clean. If you just glance over to chapter 30, what you'll see in verse 17 through 21 is instructions related to the bronze basin. So this was essentially a basin, big basin, that would have been between the bronze altar and the tabernacle itself. That's where all the washing took place. Once they're washed... Once they're clothed, these priests, the ordination, consecration, continues. Notice verse 7, with anointing. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on its head and anoint him. And again, if you just glance over to chapter 30, what you see in verse 22 and following is the Lord's provision of all of this oil that was necessary for everything to be anointed and the religious worship of Israel. So they're washed, they're clothed, they're anointed, And now, really, from chapter 10 through virtually the end, verse 10 through the end of chapter 29, you get three offerings that come forth. Blood is necessary to set apart these priests. Not long ago, I came across this story of prisoners being starved to death in the Auschwitz concentration camp in June of 1941. Evidently, three prisoners had tried to escape from their prison, and they were caught, and uh, the Nazi leadership, as they were wont to do, they decided they were going to round up ten prisoners selected at random, and as retribution, they were going to commit them to a place where they were going to starve to death. And so they began to pick out people from 
random places. You, 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 you. And eventually they landed on this army officer from Poland. And he is, you probably wouldn't be surprised, he just gets down on his knees and begins to to weep and to wail for mercy, saying, I have a wife and I have children. You can't take me. As this commotion is going on, surely all of this silence is going on too, I guess, with many there in the camp. There was this old Catholic priest that stepped forward. His name was Maximilian Kolba. And he says, I'll take his place. I don't have any wife. I don't have any children. Let me take his place. And the leadership said, yeah, you can take his place. Of course, it was a sacrifice, wasn't it? One dying so that life might come to another. And the three offerings that belong to the rest of chapter 29, that's what's going to have to happen for the priests. Because if you notice in just verse 10 through 14, there's this offering of a bull. Seems like a the rest of the Old Testament, this is best understood as a sin offering that's going to make the altar holy. And if you glance down, verse 15 through 18, you see the first of two rams are going to be killed. Blood's going to be spilled. And this seems to be an atonement offering. It's going to pay the penalty for the sins of these priests. For notice what they're to do, verse 15. Then you shall take one of the rams... And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. Now, students, you'll sometimes see this. Kids, you'll see this in the Old Testament when offerings are made. There's this symbolic act, this, this representative act of, of, of laying hands on the animal, which is, of course, representing sin transferred from the individual to the animal. Sin transferred from the representative of God's people to the animal. This animal going to be killed in the place of God's people, bearing the judgment in their place, a sacrifice of blood. Then you'll see verse 19 through 28, another ram is going to be offered, and this is spoken of as the ram of ordination. So it is a, it's a bloody ordination ceremony, isn't it? Quite unlike many of our ministerial ordinations today, not only with the nature of blood, but also the length of time. If you've ever been to an ordination of a gospel minister before, it normally only takes something like an hour, hour and a half, depending on the place where it happens. But this happened all week. Notice verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them. And you'll see every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering, so on and so forth. This is the priest's holiness. It's holiness that comes, or certainly is shown in their clothing. It's holiness, consecration, that comes through their ordination ceremony. And this is all necessary, isn't it, for God to draw near to His people? Because if you just glance through verse 38 through the end of chapter 29, you find what uh, one scholar has called the Emmanuel Principle. That God is going to draw near to His people. And all these offerings are going to continue to go forth. You'll see in verse 41... This lamb shall be offered at twilight, and another grain offering and drink offering, as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And this, this nature of morning and evening sacrifices, it's meant to symbolize, of course, the constant communion that Israel is to have with God. At morning and evening, they are in worship and being set apart in holiness and consecration to the Lord, simply because God wants to be with His people you see these I will statements in verse 44 through 46. But let me just read verse 45 and 46 where God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. 
And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And perhaps it shouldn't be surprising to us to recognize that many Christians throughout the ages have taken these verses, not just here in Exodus, but many other places in the Old Testament. Morning and evening sacrifices as nothing more than communicating to us an essential spiritual truth that God desires to be with His people. And we commune with Him, don't we? Long to commune with Him constantly. Morning and evening we rise to meet Him. We rise to be with Him. That's why throughout the ages, Christians have understood on the Lord's Day, morning and evening worship, not just on the Lord's Day. You wake up in the morning, you spend time with God, you close down that time with the Lord before you go to sleep in the evening, perhaps in family worship or, or private worship. That it's this regular rhythm of beginning and ending the day with God that promotes holiness, that promotes consecration to the Lord. I even wonder how much in your life might change if morning and evening spent with God would become a a regular pattern in your life. That's the priest's holiness, uh, the priest's service. Just a few words about chapter 30. You'll see verses 1 through 10 of chapter 30 gives us another piece of furniture. This is the altar of incense. Like most of the furniture we looked at last week, it's wooden, overlaid with gold, so it's brilliant to look at. It would have been placed right before that giant curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And kids, the way you want to think about this altar of incense, it's the glory cloud making machine. Because look what we're told in verse 7 and 8. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, and every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when he sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Because remember, of course, it was at Mount Sinai that a cloud descended on the top where God would meet with not all of Israel, but one person. And that glory cloud burning forth from the altar of incense would likewise separate the Holy of Holies from everyone else. The Holy of Holies into which only one person could enter, of course, only once a year. The service was found not just in what belonged to these various items of furniture, but also collecting offerings. Look at verse 11 through 16 with what's known as the sanctuary offering or the census tax. Just verse 12 tells us, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. So God is commanding every single person of a certain age that you must give a tax to the tabernacle, that you must give a particular offering, and it uses the language here, doesn't it, of, of ransom and redeem. And this money, of course, isn't actually what's ransoming and redeeming God's people, but it's showing forth their obedience to God's command as His redeemed, redeemed people. Because if they weren't going to trust the Lord enough to give to this tax, to give to this collection, you see, of course, notice again just what the end of verse 12 is telling us. God's plagues, His covenant curses will come upon them. And, and it seems to have this almost visual function like much of these things do with the tabernacle and the priest's clothing. Look at verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. And that remembrance language in the Old Testament, it does 
generally go two ways. Actually, here it's more from God's perspective down to the nation of Israel. And of course, children, it's not as though God was ever going to forget Israel. But as they kept up their obedience to this tax, what would happen then is the tabernacle would be kept up in its splendor and brilliance. Thereby, as you looked at that tent of meeting with splendor and brilliance, always kept up signaling the allegiance and devotion that Israel had to their God. In the same way, it's there as a visible representation, isn't it, of their covenant relationship with the Lord as they looked at this beautiful meeting place with God, at this visual reminder, perhaps to doubting hearts, that yes, God is our God and we are His people. So this is the priest's holiness. This is the priest's service. Do you have a priest? Alexander the Great, when he was on his deathbed, told his servants that he wanted to be buried in a unique way, at least unique according to the custom of that culture, because he said he wanted his body to be covered with the shroud, which wasn't unusual, but he wanted his hands to be displayed from out of the cover, which was unusual. Uh, He wanted to show forth in his death that he wasn't taking anything with him. Of course, this man who had virtually conquered the known world and all its territories and treasures recognized that there as he's departing the world, he's no different than an empty beggar. That there's this leveling reality at the end of all things. And even this census tax communicates to us the leveling reality of our redemption. You'll notice verse 14 and 15 of chapter 30. God says, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upwards shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. The point is, every single person, no matter their exact age, no matter their exact condition, no matter their exact wealth, needs to pay the same price for the ransom. Isn't that true of our lives spiritually? That every single one of you in here, no matter your age, no matter your condition, no matter your experience, no matter your wealth, one price and one price alone is necessary for your redemption. So J.C. Ryle asked, have we a priest? And of course he says, we, we do have a priest. We know his name. His name is Jesus Christ, which is why the conclusion to Ryle's article in chapter on the priest simply says that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, he is, of course, the great secret of daily comfort in Christianity. Have you a priest that is the great secret of daily comfort? So as we begin to close, what I want to do is is give you two truths in this text about Jesus Christ, how it points forward to what I trust would be the great comfort of God's ordained priest who can alone bring you into God's presence. So number one, the great high priest sheds his blood for you. The great high priest sheds his blood for you. It would have been a bloody scene, wouldn't it, there in the ordination week of these priests, blood pouring forth, blood waved about, even notice if you go back later on this afternoon, read all of chapter 29, blood dropping on the priest's garments. It was a bloody affair. 
But significantly, none of the priests actually shed blood, did they? This was the blood of another. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he doesn't shed the blood of another. He sheds his own blood to pay the penalty for our sin, which is why the author to the Hebrews can say in chapter 9, verse 12, that Jesus Christ entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I wonder if you know that eternal redemption, that alone comes through the priest named Jesus Christ. Because, of course, in our experience, it doesn't always feel that the Christian life, the Christian religion is one of blood. Certainly not in the visceral, visible way that it would have been for the nation of Israel. Uh, but you need to understand that it's no less important for us today, this, this bloody reality of, of a priest who has shed his own blood for you. Because the terrifying news of God drawing near to the world is that if you remain outside of Jesus Christ and reject him, it's your blood that will be spilled for all eternity in judgment and execution of God's righteous wrath upon you. But, but if you do look unto Jesus Christ alone today, you'll find that his blood covers you now, guaranteeing unto you an eternal redemption guaranteeing unto you eternal access into God's presence. So he's the great high priest, isn't he? Jesus Christ who sheds his own blood for you. Number two, he's the great high priest who bears your name on his heart. Look back to chapter 28. These stones that belong to the ephod and these stones that belong to the breastpiece is is continually speaking about the spiritual significance of on the priest's heart. It's the name of God's people. Just look at verse 29 of chapter 28. So Aaron, so the high priest, shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. I love reading old works. That love texts like this speaking about Christ's heart towards his people. That in a more modern way we would say what these old divines would often say is that Jesus Christ with his name, I'm sorry, your name written upon his heart, Jesus Christ can't stop thinking about his people. That every single moment of every single day he is at the Father's right hand with your name on his heart. And I suppose for many of us that is the essential simple gospel truth that you need to walk away with this day, that if you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, your name is written on his heart. Maybe you feel as though the Lord has forgotten you. You need not fear. Your name's on his heart. Maybe in times of sin, you need to remember that he's strong for you, for your name is upon his heart. If perhaps you're in a season of suffering, Take courage and know that he's praying for you because your name is on his heart. Even in times of sin, take comfort in knowing that he is tender towards you because your name is on his heart because this priest shed his blood for you. Have you a priest? His name is Jesus Christ, God's ordained priest. Who alone can bring you into God's presence. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we do rejoice in knowing that you have provided for us a way into salvation. That we need not fear that you have drawn near to us. Lord, we thank you that we can rejoice because you have drawn near to us in the form of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Emmanuel, who is God with us. Lord, help us to find strength in your word and spirit, knowing that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. That such truth and wonderful doctrine would be our comfort this week, knowing that we do have a priest, and our name is written on his heart. We pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.